Nima You rubberneckers. Don't you ever think as you drive down the motorway and see people turning back to look at the accident in the other lane that it's a rather awful thing to stare at someone else's misfortune? And might you not think the same thing about the book of Job? Why would we ever want to ponder this man's awful suffering? Shouldn't there be some sort of screen that they bring along when there's an accident on the motorway so that we can't see it? Shouldn't there be some kind of screen around the book of Job so that we don't spend time almost voyeuristically staring at this man's agony? What could possibly be the point of having the book of Job in the Bible or preaching it in the church? Well, it's very good to be with you for these two days, and it's been a great, uh, if demanding, treat for me to return to Job after a long time away uh, and to discover a little, little bit of the richness of this book afresh. Let me tell you where we're going. We're going to be looking for the wisdom of the cross in the book of Job. Now, in this first session, this is going to involve asking general questions about the book of Job, about interpretation. And I need to tell you now that you will probably feel sooner or later rather impatient and you'll be thinking to yourself, I wish this man would get to the text. I recall as an undergraduate in the University Christian Union uh, at the Bible reading meetings when the preacher would start speaking, there was a group of students who would sit first of all with their Bibles open on their laps staring attentively. And a little while into the talk, if it was developing as a bit of a string of anecdotes and gags and illustrations, the first thing that would happen with the Bible would close. And a little later, I think probably unconsciously, the arms would be folded and they would turn slightly to the side and cross their legs. And you knew it meant null point for exposition. Sometimes it's right to be impatient, but I want to encourage you to patience with these general questions, to remind you that what we find in any specific text of the Bible is often determined by, or at the very least restrained by, decisions that we have made before we come to that particular text about how we should approach texts of the Bible, maybe texts of that genre, or texts from that era of redemptive history. When it comes for, uh, to looking for the wisdom of the cross in the book of Job, none of us is a tabula rasa. You don't start with a blank sheet. You've all got opinions, you've made decisions which will govern what you can find. And that's what I want to consider first, how those decisions influence our understanding and our 
preaching of the book of Job. And I want to revisit some of those convictions that we already hold. For some of you, I will simply be underlining firmly held convictions that you already hold and you will leave encouraged. And perhaps for some of you, it might involve some reshaping. Now, if we were to skip this general stage that keeps us slightly at arm's length from the detail of Job for a while, we might just not notice that we have actually already made those kinds of decisions before coming to the text and that they have shaped our reading of it. We'd be a little bit like Job's friends who come already having made their minds up about what's going on with this man that they're about to see, but possibly unaware of it already filtering the evidence before them. Now, I'm not saying that we will end up ignoring the text. The wider consideration won't do anything more than open certain doors for us. It will not by itself determine which doors we then go through in our understanding of Job. What I will be doing in this session is really just making the case for the possibility that we might read Job in a certain way, opening that door, and then it will be in the next session to determine as we turn to the details of the text, well, do we really want to go through that door that stands open in principle before us? It will still be the text and the legitimate connections made out from that text that will tell us the meaning of Job. And so in the second and also the start of the third session, we will look at the details of the book. And then for the rest of the third session, we will think about the implications of this book for the churches we serve and for us as well. So in short, approach, detail, application. And we could approach Job by asking some very, very general questions. What is this book about? What is this book for? Maybe we would come thinking it's a book about suffering and that its purpose is therefore to prepare the church for suffering. That would be one popular approach, wouldn't it? Maybe we come thinking it's a book more fundamentally about the moral government of God and how he governs the world. And so we come thinking, well, perhaps the purpose, therefore, is to use the book to justify the ways of God to men, as John Milton put it. Or perhaps we might come thinking it's a book that's really not so much about suffering itself or moral government itself as it is about the answerability of God to man. And maybe, therefore, the purpose of the book is to disrupt some of that apologetic agenda. Maybe the purpose of the book is to tell us that we shouldn't really even be trying to put God in the dock in thinking about suffering and justice. These are common understandings of the book of Job and common convictions about its homiletic function. How are we going to navigate them? What is this book and who is it for? Well, I think all of those different answers presume an answer to another question, which is arguably the more fundamental question, a more revealing question that will determine our understanding of the book. And the more revealing question is simply this. 
Who is the man from us? Who is Job? And my suggestion to you this morning is that that is perhaps the most fruitful question you can ask in approaching this book. Quite simply, who is Job? Now, there's a minimal answer to that question, first of all, which would be, well, Job is just Job. It's just a story about one man who lived in history. That's it. It may be a very, very brilliant story, a wonderful piece of literature. It is, arguably, and many would argue, it is the greatest piece of poetic literature in the Bible. But at the end of the day, that's it. It's a brilliant telling of one man's story. Nobody else is in view in this book. Now, I take it that we're not going to spend much time thinking about that view because that is not a religious view of the book of Job, is it? Maybe you're allergic to my use of the word religion because you've spent many years telling people you're not religious. Maybe that's just an English thing for evangelical Christians to go around saying they're not religious. But the book of James talks about the religion that's pleasing to God, doesn't it? So I think I can get away with it for a bit. It's not a religious view of Job. No Jew or Christian would hold that view of Job, I think. Because if you think Job is just Job, it renders it really a museum piece, doesn't it? In the the museum of great works of literature. It has no spiritual significance. That, at the end of the day, would be the most spiritually arid approach to the book of Job that would render it useless for the church. So let's, let's leave that idea that Job is just Job aside. So who is he? And in particular, let's edge toward the question of how does he connect to the believer today, to you and to me and to the people we serve? One possibility is that Job connects to us because he himself is fundamentally to be understood as a believer. He's a believer. He's really, really, really like you and me. Admittedly, he's an unusual believer. At least he's an unusual believer in the Old Testament, though perhaps his unusualness in the Old Testament might make him even more similar to us because he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile believer. He's a pre-Christian Gentile who believes in the covenant God of the Old Testament. Now, how do we know he's a Gentile? Well, he's from the land of us. He's a son of the East, we're told. Lamentations 4.21 identifies us with Edom. Now, there are other uses. that's a great phrase, there are other uses in, in the Bible, but I think we can rule them out because there are other pointers to the fact that this us is Edom, especially the friends of Job, the apparent friends of Job who come, and in particular, Eliphaz. Eliphaz and Teman are names uh, among the early descendants of Esau, Edom, in Genesis 36. So Job, I think it's pretty safe to say, is an Edomite. He is therefore a Gentile. As Augustine says, he was neither native nor a proselyte. Gregory the Great, who wrote, by the way, an absolute monster of a commentary on the book of Job that I'm going to mention a bit more later on, uh, says he is a just pagan. Pretty surprising, then, that he believes in Yahweh, in Jehovah, in the God of the covenant the lord gives the lord takes away and 12 verse 9 as well he uses 
the covenant name of God. So he seems to be a BC believer, not ethnically Jewish, in the God of the covenant. Pretty interesting for the Old Testament to find so much attention devoted to somebody like that. And perhaps it brings him just a step closer to us if we are Gentiles today. Now, it's worth pondering, just as an aside, how he became a believer, isn't it? Pretty interesting question. How does a, how does a Gentile become a believer in the covenant God of the Old Testament? Is it that he has some kind of revelation himself of Yahweh? Is it passed down through his ancestors? Who knows how many people there were out there who'd received knowledge of the covenant God from their patriarchal ancestors? Well, however he knew it, he believed in the covenant God. And maybe that's therefore how he should be preached as a believer. Essentially, he's like us. Now, of course, we know there are epochal differences. We live this side of the coming of Christ. That might require some sort of adjustment when we come to apply Job to us, but with the careful adjustments mapped, we can essentially, on this model of approaching Job, move from Job horizontally across to the believer today. He therefore becomes for us, principally, a great example of perseverance in the face of adversity. And that is indeed how he is used, albeit very briefly, in James 5, verse 11. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. There is therefore plain as a pikestaff, a moral, exemplarist reading of the book of Job in the New Testament. He is taken as an example for the believer. There's a history of reading him that way, therefore not surprisingly in the church, Tertullian read him like this. Gregory the Great, interestingly, Although he is more famous as a fanciful allegorist in his reading of the Old Testament and his reading of, uh, of Job in particular, and some of it is really, really fanciful, nonetheless gives his commentary on Job the title Moralia in Job. Morals in Job. He's most interested in a moral reading of the book of Job. Calvin too. Uh, says in his sermons, we don't have a commentary from Calvin on Job, but we have sermons, and he says, Job is our example. Or he says, let us be advised by Job's example and withdraw from evil. Now, I don't know what you think about that. I, I mean, it might be that you come today without a, a conscious definition of the kind of preacher on the Old Testament that you are. Maybe if I stopped you at the door and said, what sort of preacher on the Old Testament are you? You'd look slightly scared. Caught in the headlights, say, oh, I don't know. Oh. Maybe you come with a highly worked out, self-conscious, deliberately formed understanding of what type of preacher of the Old Testament you are. I guess we're a real mix in the room. Some of us, I don't doubt, will be cautious 
about moralistic preaching of the Old Testament. We would prefer to be committed to redemptive historical preaching or to Christological preaching. Well, so, so am I. That's where we're heading. But we can't be sniffy about using Job as a moral example and preaching him as a moral example when the one explicit reference we have to his name in the New Testament uses him like that. James did it. And we can't think we know better than he did. So Job is clearly more than just Job. He is clearly a moral example for the believer. But here's the question that's going to consume us in these sessions. Is he also to be preached as more than a moral example to the believer? Should we stop with Job the typical believer? Or should we also go ahead to preach not just Job the typical believer, but Job the type of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's our Christological question. When we preach Job, in other words, should we not only move horizontally from Job across to the believer, but should we also be moving from Job vertically up to the Lord Jesus Christ? And on that question, opinions vary widely in the history of the church. When Ambrose of Milan writes about Job, he only contrasts him with Christ. Gregory the Great, as I've said, although he is primarily interested in moral application of Job, has a commentary stuffed full of typology and quite a bit of fanciful allegory as well. Thomas Aquinas, in his book on Job, touches on typology. Calvin affirms typology occasionally, but really only occasionally. Derek Thomas comments that in Calvin's sermons on Job, I think that there are 159 of them, there are a lot of them anyway, in those sermons on Job, the Christological, Derek Thomas says, is strangely muted. It's true of a fair bit of Calvin's Old Testament exegesis, actually. More recently, Christopher Ashes, to my mind, fantastic commentary on Job, says that it is passionately and profoundly about Jesus. And there is a whole, albeit fairly short, book by C.J. Williams devoted to arguing the case on which I will be drawing here. So is Job a type of Christ? Well, here's the problem. Straight away, an obstacle appears in the road, although arguably it's three different versions of the same obstacle. Because for many, and some of you may be numbered among them, a Christological reading of Job is hermeneutically impossible. It is impossible from the perspective of our understanding of how we are to interpret the scriptures. Now, there are different versions of the hermeneutically impossible objection to a Christological reading of the book of Job. And I want to give you these three and then to tell you why I think they're wrong. But if you agree with any one of them, 
it is going to close the door to a typal Job, and you will only be preaching Job as a moral example. First of all, for some, Job cannot be a type of Christ because they don't believe in a supernatural Bible. It is unthinkable that this book, written so very long before the time of Christ, however long that is, and estimates vary widely, could be written with Christ in view. Because that would imply that the Bible is a divine word containing miraculous foreshadowings and typology. And it's not. Uh, why, you think, why, why, is, why is he mentioning this? Why does he bother mentioning this? He should know we're not liberals. We don't need to hear this stuff. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, not that you're not liberals, I'm sure about that. But um, I'm not so sure that we should stop talking about liberal theology. And in fact, one of the things that struck me about Dick Lucas's ministry was how often he talked about what liberals thought about the passage in front of him. Because liberalism is alive and well and is informing a lot of theology in the world. And we need to keep thinking about it and about what's wrong with it. Now, he's not quite a classical liberal, but Rudolf Bultmann expressed a view of the world uh, in which he said that the world is a closed continuum of cause and effect. He's one of the greatest modern New Testament scholars. Hugely influential. Well, if that's the case, Job cannot be a type of Christ because there is no divine intrusion to provide such a prefiguring of somebody not to be born for centuries. Now, what happens in the history of biblical criticism is that that presupposition that the world is a closed continuum of cause and effect, which is, notice, fundamentally a philosophical presupposition not an historical argument, it's a philosophical presupposition, does its work and shapes people's thinking about the Bible, but then over time disappears from view. So you find in a 19th century biblical critic a very overt statement, we couldn't believe in these miracles because we don't believe in that view of the world. But you read a 20th, 21st century biblical critic, they're not saying that anymore. They're simply presenting the conclusions that that presupposition led them to as if they were historically based conclusions. And there are probably lots and lots of contemporary skeptical biblical critics who aren't thinking in philosophical terms and they are thinking that they're dealing in historical arguments because they've forgotten or nobody actually even ever told them that these views of the Bible that they hold sprang up in philosophical soil metaphysical soil, not from a historical basis. Now, that view of the Bible came to dominate uh, by around about the time of World War I, and it led to a thoroughgoing rejection of typology among Bible scholars of that ilk. So one John Derbyshire, by 1914, could write that typology as a branch of serious theological study is generally discredited and practically obsolete. It's finished, he could say, 105 years ago. And that's why you can pull off your shelf many commentaries on the book of Job, some written by 
evangelical scholars that will make nothing of Job as a type of Christ. It's the downstream effect of that worldview. That's reason number one, to shut the door to Job as a type of Christ. Here's the second. The second group would believe in a supernatural Bible. They would also, however, maintain a strict application of the grammatico-historical method of exegesis in their Bible reading of this form. The text, they would say, can only ever mean what it meant to its human author and perhaps its first human readers consciously in their minds. Nothing more. Now, Walter Kaiser is a good example of a very great evangelical Bible scholar um, and no doubt a very godly man whose book on the history of Israel I was very much helped by, who holds this view with which I'm now going to disagree. Of course he believes the Bible is a supernatural book. But he holds that the meaning intended by God, who he thinks is the author of this book, is identical with the meaning intended by the human author. He writes, If the human author did not receive by revelation the meaning in question, then exegetes and readers have no right to identify their meanings with God. Now, this position defines the connections that can and cannot be made between the book of Job and any other piece of biblical literature. In particular, it means nothing that came after the book of Job can be used to exegete the meaning of the book of Job. This is how he puts it. Only the doctrine and the theology prior to the time of the writer's composition of his revelation may be legitimately used in the task of theological exegesis. You get that? Only the doctrine and theology that already exists at the point when he picks up his pen to write can be used in exegeting what he wrote because what is in his mind sets the boundaries. Actually, of course, it's a little bit narrower than that statement itself suggests because it's not enough to show that a text was written before this text was written to prove that it might be a possible help in understanding it. You would also have to know that the person who wrote this text knew that text. It's not enough simply for it to predate our author. We must also be confident that he'd read it. Maybe we even have to be confident that he'd remembered it. Well, we do have to be confident of that. Now, therefore, any Christological sense, any typal reading of Job will only be possible if the author demonstrably knew it. It's going to be pretty hard to demonstrate. That's objection number two that would close the door to a Christological Job. Here's the third. Maybe I'm edging closer to some of you. 
Maybe I've already met you and shaken you warmly by the hand before disagreeing with you. Um, but this one may be, bring us a bit closer. Some would say Job can't be read as a type of Christ because the New Testament doesn't tell us he was. The famous statement of this comes from Herbert Marsh, who was a bishop and a professor at Cambridge in the 19th century and a higher critic of the Bible. He puts it like this. There is no other rule by which we can distinguish a real from a pretended type than that of scripture itself. There are no other possible means by which we can know that a previous design and a foreordained connection existed. Whatever persons or things, therefore, recorded in the Old Testament were expressly declared by Christ or by his apostles to have been designed as prefigurations of persons or things relating to the New Testament, such persons or things so recorded in the former are types of the persons or things with which they are compared in the latter. Somebody needed to give the poor man an iron to iron out the creases in his prose. But what he's saying is, you can only think it's a type of Christ if the New Testament tells you it's a type of Christ. But if we assert that a person or thing was designed to prefigure another person or things, where no such prefiguration has been declared by divine authority, we make an assertion for which we neither have nor can have the slightest foundation. Now, among evangelical scholars, this position is defended more recently by Richard Longenecker. He writes this. While we legitimately seek continuity with our Lord and his apostles in matters of faith and doctrine, we must also recognize the uniqueness of Jesus as the interpreter of the Old Testament and the distinctive place he gave to the apostles in the explication of the prophetic word. Again, he says, our commitment as Christians is to the reproduction of the apostolic faith and doctrine and not necessarily to the specific apostolic exegetical practices. Now, that's similar to what Marsh is saying because what that means is you can only find a type where Jesus or the apostles found a type. You can't take their method of finding types and apply it to things which they didn't apply it to. What they find a type is a type, and nothing else. They alone could read the Old Testament like that. We can't take that method and do it anywhere else. So he's concluding from the example of Jesus and the apostles reading the Old Testament this way that we mustn't read the Old Testament this way. They alone could do it. And by definition, it could be only be done where they did it, and they didn't do it with Job. So you cannot have Job as a type of Christ. He is, as I mentioned, only named in James chapter 5. There are two overt quotations of the book of Job. 5.13 is quoted in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Um, and then there's a quotation in Romans 11 as well, 11.35 from, uh, from 41.11. There's maybe some other allusions to Job, verbal allusions but that's it. So you don't have Job overtly used as a type of Christ. So he can't be on that logic. The door is shut. 
Let me give these three views short titles so I can refer to them. The anti-supernatural argument, the human meaning argument, and the uniqueness of apostolic exegesis argument. It's short air. <laughs> now, I hope you can see here why I want to stay general in this first session. I hope you can see what I meant about the significance of decisions that we make before we come to the text. Because each of these three arguments has already told us that we can't find a typology of Christ in the book of Job before we even open the book of Job. If we reject these three arguments, well, at least the door is open. Unless you've got other arguments I haven't thought of. The door is open to him being a type of Christ. And as I say, it will then be down to the detail of the text to determine whether he is or isn't. But we need to make that judgment consciously and carefully at the general level, not just by accident or by default or by assumption. One of the things I want to press on you in this session is the importance of general hermeneutical questions. Don't be so impatient to get to the text that you forget the big picture questions about how you read the Bible. Those are not questions to be reserved to Bible scholars, or they're not questions just for when you had the luxury of time at seminary in your ivory tower and nothing better to do before you got into the business of real preaching and teaching. No, no, no. These are questions which shape your every sermon and which have already determined the character of your entire preaching ministry. But they are questions that we are under pressure to neglect because, well, I speak for myself and for the preachers I talk to. Under the pressure of pastoral demands, we increasingly confine ourselves to paying conscious attention only to the text in front of us for the next Lord's Day. Time is squeezed, and hopefully what is left is at least some time in the commentaries. Though I've had one or two pastors in my study tell me that even that has gone. But very easily, we get narrowed to simply the passage in front of us. Now, if that has happened to you, or if you find it happening to you, that does not mean you are avoiding the wider hermeneutical questions. What it means is that you've picked up and carried with you an answer from somewhere, perhaps barely scrutinized, an answer that is growing increasingly stale doesn't mean you've avoided the questions at all. It is madness, I suggest, to think that we can safely be uninterested in hermeneutics. Or even, dare I say it, to think that we should be uninterested in hermeneutics, as if there were some kind of virtue in being a hermeneutical ignoramus, a badge of pride that we should belittle hermeneutics. There is no such thing as a hermeneutic free reader. The question is just whether we have a truly biblical hermeneutic or not. So what about these three arguments? Well, I take it that we can very swiftly set aside 
the anti-supernatural argument. We know, I take it, that the world is not a closed continuum of cause and effect. A Christological typology cannot be ruled out on philosophical grounds. Our metaphysic rules it in, not out, because we believe the Bible is a supernatural word with a supernatural divine author. So we're left really to think about the second and third arguments against a typal reading of Job. The human meaning argument. Well, actually, Job's a rather useful case study for the viability of this hermeneutical approach. The mind of the human author determines the range of possible meanings. I'm not being facetious when I ask you one simple question. Who? We don't know who it was. We don't know who wrote the book of Job. The identity of the human author is lost to us. Kaiser says we can only use the doctrine and theology from before the text that we're considering. I don't think I'm being facetious when I say, when? Because we don't know when the book of Job was written. We don't even have a rough idea of when it was written. We don't even know what century it was written in. Estimates vary from the time of the patriarchs through to the post-exilic era. If you look in the, the sort of academic commentaries, current dates vary between about the 7th century BC and the 3rd century BC. It's not even a question like the unity of Isaiah, in which I take it that, that there's a big division between evangelicals and liberals. On this one, we're pretty free to think within bounds fairly freely on the question, because we don't know. So even at that most conservative estimate, we have a spread of 400 years in which the book of Job may have been written. It is actually, therefore, impossible for us to use the intent of the human author approach to this book. If we need to peg the book of Job in relation to other Old Testament books, we are in big trouble when it comes to interpreting Job. And even if we could peg it, would we know what he read and what he had in his mind? I don't think so. Now, you tell me. No, no, come on, Williams. You're just, you're just stirring. You're just causing trouble unnecessarily. You're multiplying problems unnecessarily. You're making it much more complicated than it need be. The answer is simple. Of course we can discover what's going on in the mind of the human author of Job because we can look at the words he wrote. Never mind the fact that we don't know his name or what century he wrote in. We have a book stuffed full of his words. But that isn't actually what the human authorship argument says. It says that the meaning is prescribed by the fields of possibility in the mind of the human author, given what he knew of prior revelation. Now, of course, it starts with the words on the page. But that's only one side of the equation of meaning. On the other side of the equation of meaning is a defined field of exegetically illuminating connections in other bits of the Bible. Both the words on the page and the texts to which that text connects are in view in interpreting what Job means. And on the human author argument, 
we would need to reconstruct the mind of the human author to see all of those possibilities that he might have intended. We would be absolutely enslaved to the archaeology of the Old Testament texts. That would require judgments which are simply impossible with the book of Job. And any conclusion about that field of meaning would be highly precarious, and therefore any conclusion about the meaning of Job would be highly precarious. I think this position is intended to tether us to the text. It's worried about fanciful readings. It's intended to tie us to the text on the page in front of us, but actually it ends up leading, leaving us tethered to a field of possibilities which we cannot actually pin down. It ties us to our own speculative reconstruction of the knowledge of an unknown author writing in an unknown time, in an unknown relation to our author, about an indeterminable body of prior revelation. We, we just... We're going to get nowhere on that view. Now, is there a viable alternative that doesn't cut us loose from the words? Well, there is. It is simply this to treat these words as primarily, most importantly, the words of the divine author of Scripture. The big impact that has is that it changes what is on the other side of the equation. We start with the same text and the same words. But what is on the other side of the equation is now no longer an unknown. We know the identity of the author, the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible is, as a book, God's self-disclosure, the revelation of who the author of this book is. We know that he is self-consistent. We know that he is never deceitful. We know that he makes no mistakes. We know his intentions towards us. He is the compassionate and gracious God. We actually know God better than we know the human authors whose names we do know. And, most importantly, we know exactly what he knew when he wrote the book of Job. Regardless of when it was written. He knew all of the other words of Holy Scripture those that came before, those that would come afterwards. He had in view every jot and tittle of the Bible. Therefore, the scriptural text can be read synchronically all together at once, reflecting that dictum that apparently the rabbis had. There is no before and after in scripture. Now, that could be a disastrous dictum, okay? I'm not trying to erase progression in redemptive history and change, massive progress in redemptive history. But when it comes to reading the finished canon, we can read it all together, sensitive to the development, historical development within it, allowing in principle, in principle, any other word uttered by the Holy Spirit to interpret this word uttered by the Holy Spirit. That does not mean it's a free-for-all, because I say in principle, a commitment to the primacy of divine authorship 
still gives us a defined field of possible connections. There's still a distinction between real and imagined connections. But the field is greatly enlarged. We have in view the whole of the rest of Scripture. That means if you're convinced of the primacy of the divine author in determining the meaning of Scripture, you've got a bigger job to do than if you're convinced of the human author's primacy because you now have to be studying the whole of Scripture in order to understand the meaning of this book. But it also means rather wonderfully that the meaning of this text is more secure and stable because you are tethered to a known rather than an unknown. And that, I think, is what we would expect, that if the sovereign almighty God intends to communicate with us, he will do so more successfully than any merely human communicator. The enlarged field of possibilities then contains actually now everything in the New Testament. Job may be a type of Christ. I say may because all we've done is to put the door in front of us open. We've not yet shown that we should walk through it. But I'm still moving too fast because we've got the third objection. What about the uniqueness of apostolic exegesis? They could do it, we can't. Well, that seems to me to be equally problematic. It amounts to saying, does it not, that the way that Jesus and the apostles read the Old Testament would generally be entirely wrong. But, happily, was made miraculously right in the specific cases where they did it like that. That's an odd position to hold. It's as if you meet an apostle and the apostle has to say to you, don't do whatever we do. Whatever you do, don't do it. Our exegetical work on the Old Testament is a really bad example. Please don't copy it. It was only the miracle of inspiration that made our bizarre exegesis true. Make sure you do something different. Though quite how you're meant to know what that is, I'm not sure. Don't ask Jesus and the apostles how to read the Old Testament. Ask, I don't know what... Literary critics, Paul Ricoeur, Jacques Derrida, who are we going to ask? The argument seems to be they did it, therefore we must not. Now that places the weight on the difference between the apostles and us rather than their authority and example for us. And that seems odd as a general approach to the apostles. It's not how we are to approach their teaching, is it? As, as indeed some of our authors acknowledge. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Reproduce it. It's not how we approach their lives. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. <clears throat> the default assumption in how we relate to the apostles would seem to be we follow their example rather than reject it and think it's strange and otherwise wrong, apart from those moments when they happen to do it. My view, I have to tell you, is the precise 
opposite. If the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles read the Bible like that, how dare we read it otherwise? Who do we think we are? We mustn't allow outlandish examples of allegory to drive us to applying extra stringent tests to typology, which if we think about them in other connections, we would see are quite weird. For example, prophecy, and Gerhardus Voss makes this point. He says typology is very like prophecy. We don't think the New Testament has to tell us that a prophecy is fulfilled in Christ for us to think it's fulfilled in Christ. We read whole swathes of Old Testament prophecy and think they're fulfilled in Christ, which are never quoted by the New Testament. Typology is arguably just a kind of prophecy, isn't it? It's a sort of enacted, lived prophecy. The prophetic aspect of typology is an important part of its definition. So why should we apply extra stringent criteria to typology compared to prophecy? We should read the Bible the way the Lord Jesus did. Three obstacles removed. The door stands open. Should we go through it? To the text in our next session. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that you would help us constantly to be testing the way that we read your word against your word. Please would you keep us from laziness, from being distracted by the specifics. Please would you help us to revisit these questions in a way that will continue to shape our approach to your word according to what you have told us it should be. We ask this, that we might be better, more faithful preachers and proclaimers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Nima.